What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a special guest today. Uh, you will you will uh, know their names and their work. We have Michael Isakoff and Dan Clydeman. I just I, you know I have I have what was it? I I actually I I was uh, speaking to our producer John a little a little while ago, and he said you know I uh, what was it? I you said I think it's. Uh, Clydeman and I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't mean to bum, bum you out, but it's actually Clydeman. I followed his work for many oh, years. So I'm, glad, you, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad you weren't you weren't uh, going to throw your producer under the bus. And no, blame I throw myself. I throw myself <laughs> yeah. under the bus. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, and uh, Isakoff is chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News and a longtime uh, investigative journalist. Uh, Dan is editor in chief of Yahoo News and himself a veteran and national. National security intelligence uh, journalist, and we are. There's a whole bunch of issues we're going to talk about. And we are also, by the way, the co-hosts yes. of. Skull well, that's Duggery. one of the thing. Yes, Skullduggery. Yes. You guys have right. your own podcast. We have our own podcast. Everybody's everybody is is is, is yes. getting into the getting into the podcast thing. You know, I I'll I'll everybody should listen to it. And and um, just recently there was that. Big uh, a brouhaha with uh, Rashida Talib and that that whole thing, and that was on on your podcast. That's right, yep. and that's that's you know it's one thing I want to um, I want to get to in a minute. Sort of the what happens in a case like that where you know. Y- it wasn't, you know, you didn't bring her on to say like, "Hey, what do you think about the Holocaust?" Right? right? It, right it's just right. kind of it was organic. Yeah, happened organically, <laughs> yeah. and then suddenly it's this big thing, yeah. you know, that it's takes a, it, on a life of its well, own. We should get into this yeah. later because uh, I know that you have other things, but it's an interesting question, and it and it and it. I think it is illuminating about the state of the media today in this kind of hyper-partisan culture we live in. So we can get into that. Cool, cool, cool. Um, well, before before we do that, we're, you know, the, 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 we need to have a word from our sponsors. This is also part of <laughs> part of the uh, part of the podcast uh, thing. The climate is warming up. The climate is boiling. Uh, political climate is boiling over. Yep, it sure is getting hot out there. But Grady's Cold Brew can help you cool things down this summer. Order online and get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a buck a cup. Grady's will end up saving you a ton of money, but also a ton of time. No need to wait in coffee shop lines because Grady dispenses directly from your fridge. Already cold, completely customizable for your perfect cup. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, I think we've, John, we've mentioned this a few times, that Grady himself. Yes, next week. Yeah, is going to 
going to come on the podcast. This sounds like kind of like classic, <laughs> like, you know, sponsored content or whatever. But I have been drinking this coffee for like well, years. Well, I, I think John... You were about. You offered me a cup of this. I did. Uh, yes, we all drink it in the office. Yes. That yeah. whole refrigerator over there <laughs> yeah. is filled with seriously filled with Grady's. It's it's uh, it's great stuff. And 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 one of the things is this is this, called native advertising. Yes, exactly. No, but this is the thing. It's it is legitimately not. This is totally legit. There's no extra bump they're getting. This is like I wanted him to come on. Um, but this is the thing. It's not like uh, you know Colonel Sanders or something. There's actually a Grady. You know they didn't like right right. This right. isn't like Verizon. We're like what's Wait, the name? There, there isn't a Colonel Sanders. There wasn't. There certainly isn't now. Well, I, I, I mean, hope my was. kids are even, listening e- to this podcast. Even, even the ad guy, even the guy on the ads, I think is. is but there is uh, a Santa is Claus. Isn't there? <laughs> yeah, well, no, we're not going to. We're not going to get into. <laughs> right. This is not that transgressive a, a, a podcast. Okay. So let me. Okay, we're we're going to get into. We're going to talk about podcasting. We're going to talk about that uh, Rashida Tlaib issue, and not so much kind of like the. The sort of the faux controversy itself, but the sort of the media dynamics right. of that. Um, but let's talk. One of the things I want to go back to the second half of 2016. Okay. And now you did some of the, I'll let you describe it, but some of the earliest reporting on sort of what we now know as the dossier and these things were kind of starting to kind of dribble out uh, in the in the late months of, of the 2016 cycle. Um, let, let's start with looking back. How do you describe the early reporting on the dossier, how that was kind of circulating in those in those final months? Um, what does that reporting look like in retrospect to you? Well, look, I mean, first of all, there, you know, there's a predicate to the story of the dossier, and that is there was real stuff going on in um, the summer of 2016. In June, we learned that the Russians had hacked into the Democratic National Committee. Uh, it was front page Washington Post story, and it you know obviously raised a lot of alarms. What's going on here? How does this happen? They got... Uh, uh, one of the documents they got, it was reported, was the oppo file on Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, then you cut to the Democratic convention and suddenly like six all this weeks stuff, later, six, yeah, seven weeks later. Yeah. All this stuff starts getting dumped out by WikiLeaks that clearly was the DNC hack material. So that you know, raised all sorts of alarms. Remember, you know, during this period, Paul Manafort becomes the campaign chairman. Paul Manafort had these longstanding ties uh, to the pro-Russia political party in uh, in Ukraine. Um, By the and, way, Donald Trump asks the Russians to hack. Well, that that's a little after later. The convention. The, yeah. That the was convention, July twenty right. seventh, right, right, and right, say, right. you know, Russia, if you're listening, please do this. So. There were grounds for suspicion right. uh, that would have aroused the interest of any self-respecting FBI counterintelligence official well, to begin and, with. And there was also there was also uh, now it it I think we I think it sort of seems like he's a marginal figure now. But you also had this Carter Page guy, right? Who right, had right. who who was like in Russia all the time. Yeah, You're like, this I mean, is your gets and this is your Europe guy. What You're foreign like, policy right, advisory right. board? And you know, then he flies off to Moscow and gives a speech, and he has all these ties. So 
you know, you put all that together, and look, I was among the group of reporters who were keenly interested in all this and trying to figure out where it went. We did a big story on the eve of the convention about um, the uh, the DNC uh, contractor uh, Ali Chalupa, who had been hacked by the Russians after she started to raise the alarm about Manafort, and that got a lot of people's attention as well. So then, you know, the dossier comes along, and it is true. I am. I'm I mean, I wrote about this in Russian Roulette and have talked about it on our podcast. I am among those who meets Christopher Steele in September uh, and, you know, here's his download about Carter Page. At that point, I'm not seeing a dossier per se, but um, uh, Steele has revealed I, you know, Yahoo News was among the news organizations he briefed. And, you know, there were very specific allegations in there about meetings that he held in Moscow, uh, that uh, including with a sanctioned guy, the head of Rosneft, Igor Sechin. Um, and what I you know, began to do, any reporter would do, is check out you know, Carter Page, I um, established he was who he said he was. And, you know, the big key thing was I got it confirmed that the FBI was in fact, investigating right. these allegations. That's a really and that was the first story to report that there was a counterintelligence investigation, investigation right. into anybody connected with. But the really the, important point here is that you know you didn't do any. We knew about the dossier. Um, uh, yeah, I had. And, yes, we and, knew about it. But we did not do any stories entirely based on the dossier. No. The first story we did was the Carter Page story. It was story, only a story which, because I confirmed that this was, I mean, Steele had told me that this had been presented to the FBI and that they were taking it seriously. And you know, as soon as he told me that, I said, wow, if that is true, then there's a story here. Uh, and there was. And um, so now, you're asking, looking back in retrospect at the dossier, which, of course, I didn't see in its entirety until BuzzFeed published right, it. Right. I certainly was aware of the allegations. I had seen portions of it, um, uh, like a and, lot of other reporters. And to be clear, and yeah. tell me if this is right, yeah. what we now are calling the dossier is really just his collected memos. notes and memos that yeah. he was producing so it's not yeah. like the the is sort of an after the fact thing it's just kind of all of his research it's a file. and yeah the file that he had created in his ongoing yeah Whatever. But anyway, I, listen, my comments on this have gotten some attention over you know the last several months because you know from today's perspective, um, one can say you know Steele was big picture onto something. Uh, yeah, one can debate how much of that was sort of in the air already right. at the right. time he's writing the memos. Yeah. Um, but when you get to the specifics of those allegations. You know, very few of them actually correspond to what we now know to be real events. Um, and, you know, on its face, you know, Steele didn't talk to his sources. He's got a collector who's right. talking to other sources. So right. this is third hand information. And, you know, it now looks like a lot of uncorroborated gossip right. that was assembled, but did get people spun up, not just because of, you know, the sensational, salacious allegations 
notion of compromise involving right. prostitutes in a in a hotel room, but that this was a well-developed conspiracy between Trump and the Russians, and there was a regular exchange of information between the two sides for the purpose of help, uh, uh, getting Donald Trump elected. And you know, when you put the allegations under a microscope. Um, they don't really hold up the specific ones. The general ones, right. yes. The specific ones do not. Now, is how much is that in the nature of, you know, collection of raw intelligence that you're 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 kind of bringing all sorts of stuff together? It's yeah. not. Um, I, I, I guess one, one thing that that always comes up to me is this was. This is not something that was created for publication. It's basically pulling together all sorts of information. And then, at least in theory, there's, there's, there's supposed to be a next step when it's sort of evaluated to see what is confirmable. And does that make sense to you? Is yeah, that, is I mean, that look, a I mean, raw or? intelligence is, you know, I mean, a fancy way of saying uncorroborated gossip, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we could say anything is yeah. raw intelligence. Somebody told me something. Right, I don't right, know if it's right. true, but, right, you know, right, right. I got some raw intelligence for you. Um, but, um, you know, look, the, the, the reason we're still talking about this today and the reason this, you know, may have some traction yet is that the FBI did use the Steele allegations in its application to the FISA court to get the FISA warrant on Carter Page. Right. Um, and so I think the, and that's what the inspector general is looking at. And I think the question is going to be at the time they did this and they did it four separate times, mm-hmm. how much did the FBI know about the reliability of Steele's information? And uh, you know, that seems to be what the IG is focused on. We will see. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to prejudge this, but, you know, the outcome of that investigation um, can be quite significant if it shows that the FBI in any way misled the court or that some of the information that it had or in, uh, that had questioned the reliability of the Steele dossier and mm-hmm. they didn't disclose that to the court. You know, that will be a big deal for the president's allies. And right. they will be able to shout to the rooftops, aha, you see, we told you all along. Now, I don't think that in any way takes away from the merits of the investigation that the FBI was doing. It had plenty of grounds to conduct a counterintelligence investigation at this point. But yeah, it's, it's important to remember that yeah, yeah. their investigation did not begin with the Steele report, and it didn't right? begin right. with the Steele right. report. Right. But it was right. a factor. It was in the it was in the in the midst. They were aware of it by August, um, and it sort of fueled a lot of the concerns. And I think it sort of laid out a theory of the case that, uh, you know, I think that the relationships now appears to be murkier than was the alleged question, in the Steele dossier. The thing that I would look for, um, having uh, reported on a lot of these kinds of internal investigations, into investigations in the past, is someone in the FBI, maybe some lower-level lawyer in the general counsel's office or a, or a, a, counterintelligence, a counterintelligence agent analyst, or yeah. analyst somewhere down the chain 
who warned about the reliability of this information. Maybe we shouldn't be relying on it for a FISA uh, application. And but a isn't memo it the that case that it was, not, it was not the only thing they were relying on, even for that application? No, no, it no. Was, it was, they had other right. stuff on right. page. The, you know, the question is, how much weight did the Steele allegations? I mean, Page was on their radar screen for a few years because he had been targeted by Russian intelligence agents in, in a New York investigation, right? Right, so right, right. So they were, you know, and I think, I think they knew that, they had that in the file, and then they see the steel stuff and it's like oh holy shit we gotta you know pursue this right right um, right but look you know i i just think that it is important for all of us who take the russia story seriously uh to be as honest as we can about you know what the facts are and what the facts aren't and the frustrating thing about watching cable news coverage is it's all one thing or the other you know you can switch back from hannity to maddow right. at a time and it's two different realities right. and- let me ask you this though and this this is one of the things that that came up to me again and again reading the first volume of the report that and and it was well let me put it this way it's very clear because the the special counsel has told us that they they uh canceled manafort's plea deal uh pulled out of the plea deal because they thought he was a lying to them and holding information back right okay um it's also the case in in the report that and this is and this is kind of put out there, but some of what at least I drew is sort of the logical conclusion of that wasn't wasn't ever uh, examined that there were various sort of lines of evidence, people they were were you know trying to squeeze or trying to get answers from uh, that people just kind of said, oh, you know, I don't remember. Yeah. sorry. <laughs> or or various there, there were various lines like that where they just let's put it this way the, the the there seems to me a a fair amount in that report where it's not like all right we looked at this there was a lot of smoke and there was some shady stuff but we kind of ran into ground and there was no there there that's not exactly what it said, and what you know, what there there is is a whole other question. It seemed like there were major lines of investigation that just hit a brick wall, and it wasn't that there was no there there. I mean, you know, well, as, as flash, this happens in white collar oh, investigations ab- absolute, all absolutely, the time. Absolutely, Everyone uh, no. you can think of if there isn't an email, if there isn't a whistleblower, oh, well, 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 if there but, isn't but a, a tape. I mean, you know, but, but, I, but no, they I, also did not interview a number of the subjects and principals in this investigation. They didn't interview Trump. They, they didn't they, interview they Trump. Asked questions. They didn't right. interview Donald Trump Jr., yeah. who was a uh, a key player here. They didn't interview uh, Kushner. No, so did, I think they did interview Christian. in the grand jury. I don't know if it was yeah. in the grand jury, right, but, but the FBI. But look, I mean, yeah. uh, and you know, there are certain lines of investigation that they did not. I mean, we talked about this on our podcast that's out today. He did not. Go, he did not investigate Deutsche Bank, right? 
uh, in a in a serious way. Maybe because he thought it was outside the mm-hmm. scope of his mm-hmm. mandate, mm-hmm. but he, maybe he could have gotten it expanded. Right, so right, right. I think there are you know he this is this is Mueller. He's a by the books uh, by the rules G man, and I think um, it's legitimate to ask the kind of questions that Josh is asking. About. Yeah, look, I mean, no, uh, nobody. <sighs> Yeah, what was Mueller's phrase? Insufficient yeah. evidence to charge a conspiracy. But that's really the only standard of oh, a, a Justice a, Department as a, oh, investigation. As a, as a legal right. matter, absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think more as, for lack of a better word, as a historical matter, as, as, as our more general journalistic and eventually historical try to like, what happened here? And like, as a... To me, it's, it is a secondary part of the case, but you've got that whole weird thing with Jerome Corsi. Like, what was he doing there, right? Where it, it you know, it's not it's, to mention Randy Credit Card. <laughs> well, but with, yes. with Corsi, it's really kind of a mystery to me. Did he kind of go in there at some level thinking like, I'm going to I'm going to kick up so much smoke, kind of raise so many questions about whether I even you know, have all my screws, you know, kind of uh, tightened up and everything and leave them in a case where they just don't know what to do because they don't they don't know what to make of me. Um, Or maybe he just I don't know what. But that okay, that's one thing, because that has to do with kind of, you know, back channel to WikiLeaks, maybe. But on this basic point, it certainly seems like the investigators thought from pretty early on that Paul Manafort was at the was at the center of whatever there was. And at the end of the day, he never came clean with them. And he's doing a, he's going to do a serious, or at least for the moment, going to do a serious jail uh, sentence. And so to me, again, legally speaking, yes, that's how the law works. You, you, you know, use the tools you have, you put together do the evidence. Do we fully understand what Paul Manafort's role was? Uh, the answer is no. Um, although, you know, you could say that some of the most suspicious Parts of the Manafort story, if you read the report closely, you know, you begin to see it's more nuanced than a lot of people would like to think. Yes, he does meet with Kalimnik, mm-hmm. his old time associate uh, at the Grand Havana Cigar Room, and he does share with him polling data from inside the campaign. That on its face, looked really suspicious. Right. But when you see the full context of what was, you know, Manafort wants Kalimnik to pass this to Deripaska. So Deripaska will get off his ass in the, you know, and stop pursuing him in the lawsuit. Right, you know, right, Hey, right. give him this. He can make us whole right, with right, right, Deripaska. Right. They're these Ukrainian oligarchs who still owe me a couple of million dollars. Can you get it to them and maybe they'll pay up and then maybe I'll have some business afterwards? It looks to me more like a sort of Manafort the grifter, like be setting things up to line his pockets post-campaign right, than right. it does like part of a conspiracy yeah, but, to, you know, but between the Trump but campaign But isn't a lot of that, I mean, it's always struck yeah. me. I mean, I never had the thought that like Paul Manafort is is a is a Russian agent per se, It's it, but it is after the campaign, it became increasingly clear that this is someone who was... Uh, in a in a sort of slow motion process of a emotional collapse, I think right. he was actually hospitalized. Uh, right. You know, admitted himself for hospitalization. Remember, he wasn't getting period. paid by the Trump campaign either. Right, so and, and was in he's dire financial yes to, so, for his future business it, opportunities to open doors. Exact, exactly, exactly. Also, to curry favor yeah. with Derek Derek Posky, he's offering briefings uh, because he knows that. Right. 
you know, Eric Bosco is coming after him be, for all that money he owes And he'll him. be somebody connected to a possible future Trump administration. Yeah, if it all, so, if it all goes well, if he... If, if, this was the original business model for <laughs> Black right. Manafort and yeah, stuff. Totally. Right? If, you, you know. if you create an alternative history where Trump wins, there's none of these doubts about all these kind of things. Suddenly, you know, you would have a hundred profiles, you know, kind of down, you know, kind of has been Paul Manafort comes back for his greatest triumph. He he reopens another version of the of the of, you know, of, of Black Manafort. And uh, he, it's it's money forever. Right. But I guess to me, that is not at all inconsistent with the other version of the story that he gets in there because he's got these people on his on his trail and he needs to help them not because he has not because he really gives a crap about about you know uh russian ambitions in eastern europe right right. but he is i mean you know he owes this guy terabaska 20 million dollars just to start with that's a pretty big problem um one more question on this front so you know, I, I had, we had when when the first when that first Washington Post story, which was what like April uh, twenty sixteen about hack. the break, yeah, about the no, DNC. June, June, okay, June, was it, was it, was June, it June? Yeah, yeah, okay, I think it was June fourteenth. All right, you know, you're right, you're right. Yeah. So it was actually April that I think one of the final. Like maybe they found out about it. maybe the DNC yeah, found DNC out about it in April. Discovers it on the weekend of the White House Correspondents' Dinner at the end of April right, is okay. when they realize, uh, oh my God, right? Okay, we've been penetrated. So, so uh, you know, we wrote that up like everyone else did, and had someone who I know who kind of, and I think this is right as far as it goes, who said, look. You've got all these like uh, is it crowdsource? Is that the name of the crowd? Crowd strike. Crowd strike. You got all these you know uh, contractors and and this person tells me um, th- this person tells me uh, you know th- these places they put out these press releases because oh we found it was the Russians like did they really know it was the Russians you know or is this a way for them to kind of run you know. Uh, um, Get business, you know. Get business, right? We're, you know, we're on top of things, whatever. And of course, it is. That's, but that doesn't mean that this particular thing wasn't true. Anyway, we put a reporter on it and and kind of, you know, wanting to see if this really adds up or if or if the national dialogue is kind of being pushed by the the sort of the business concerns of this of this company. And pretty quickly, it comes back like most of the experts seem to think they're right. So we're like, okay, well, you know, that was sort of a dry hole. Um, and over the course of the next month, I started, there, there was, I can't remember what it was. It was, uh, I can't remember if it was a Manafort. One of these threads about why are all these people around Trump? You've got Manafort and Page. You've got lots of information. Flynn. Yeah, Flynn, you know, Mike Flynn. You've got lots of information that he's, you know, a lot of reliance on, on on private Russian money over the years and all these different things. And what's going on here? And I, I, I spent like a week or so just pulling together, you know, a little of it was my own reporting, but mainly just pulling together all the things that were kind of out there. And it was funny because I, I um, right before I published it was when the first WikiLeaks thing happened. And at first I was sort of like, you know, people are saying maybe this is the stuff from the DNC, but I don't want to get into that. But let's go back 
to that before even before even the wiki the first WikiLeaks drop, and maybe even before um, uh, the you know CrowdStrike, you know the Washington Post article, there was all this stuff. Put, go back to there. Yeah, where well, pe- I mean, I wrote a story. I think it was in late April. Um, shortly after Manafort was named, about the Deripaska lawsuit in the Cayman Islands. I mean, I got the court documents mm-hmm. from the filings in, in, in the Cayman Islands, and like, oh my God, the guy who's heading the campaign is in hock to, you know, a uh, mobbed-up billionaire Putin-friendly oligarch right, who's right. pursuing him, you know, on its face. You know, there's an issue there, right? Um, so, I mean, I remember that was one of the stories that got me worked up, you right, know, and thought right. that this is significant. Well, it, it yeah. also, this, this part of it also, I mean, I just wanted to get a sense of sort of your recollections of what the chatter was among journalists at, at the time. But this is always why, I mean, I buy the idea that it was the Papadopoulos thing that really was the tripwire. Right. Um, but it has always struck me that because of stuff like this, there's no way that there weren't counterintelligence people early in 2016 thinking like, what the fuck? Like, what yeah. is going on here? You know, why are all oh, these yeah. things together? Because it was just I mean, the CIA really was figure. already very worked up about about the Russians um, in this in this period, um, uh, even before the hack. I mean, I remember I interviewed Brennan um, at the agency, and there was all sorts of stuff going on, um, including you know uh, they had roughed up the were, CIA guy outside the embassy. They were that, har- that harassing Brennan really worked out, harassing right? diplomats. Yeah. Um, they knew that. Uh, first of all, they they knew the. Um, the Russians' history of interfering in elections. They've been doing it um, in, um, in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, um, and in Western Europe, I think, um, for uh, quite some time. They had loaned money to, uh, to uh, Le, Pen Le Pen's in party France. in France. Yeah. And that um, was public. That yeah. wasn't like we right. later finding out with Brexit. Yeah. That was, and yeah. I, I just remember being struck, um, and this was before a lot, a lot of this stuff had come out, how exercised, how angry uh, uh, Brennan was, was sitting in his dining room at, at Langley uh, about the Russians, um, and he he at that time I think knew a lot more that we would soon. But you know, about. I think it was like a, there, there's an element of betrayal there that Brennan felt well, because, because remember the, the, re- the, reset the reset policy of the Obama folks, and and Brennan was really the spear. We have a scene in Russian Roulette where uh, Bordnikov, the head of the FSB, oh. comes in 2015. To Washington, uninvited, he, he's heading the Russian delegation to that uh, countering counter, violent counter, terrorism right. summit uh, that the White House was promoting because of the threat of ISIS and all that. And uh, Bortnik- the Russians named Bortnikov, the head of the FSB, to head the delegation. Um, the White House people were very upset. And then Bortnikov goes to see uh, Brennan. In at Langley and Steve Hall, who was the head of the Russia desk, you know, or had been the chief of Russia operations, is telling Brennan, "Why are you meeting with this guy? You know, he's a thug. He's he's a uh, he's you know uh, he's a Stalinist, and you know the Russians are fucking us all over the globe. And why are we meeting this guy?" And Brennan made it clear this was something the president wanted, and it was all about getting Russian cooperation in uh, Syria. in Syria, in Syria. Uh, to curb ISIS. So. How'd that 
go? Uh, yeah, not well. <laughs> so by the time, that's 2015. By yeah. 2016, Brennan is feeling really like, you know, they put one over on yeah. me. I was trying to work with these guys, and here they are fucking yeah. us. What was, what was the, what date was it? I remember that when the release of that Victorian Newland call was a very big deal. That was 2000, uh, well, that was right in the... Um God, it's in the book. Uh, uh, wasn't that 2011 or? Well, no, because I, wait, I thought it was. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The release I'm sorry. of it. I'm sorry. 2014. Right. 2014. Yeah. What well, happened in 14? But yeah. was the release of it in 14? Yeah, it happened it, in real time within oh, okay. a couple of days of says, the actual uh, conversation. Was it fuck, fuck the, the Europeans EU. or fuck, fuck the, the EU? EU. Right. right. Josh, will you remind us what this call is? Well, okay, so so that's the I, first thing you've said in this podcast. <laughs> so I, I think I think the significance of this call is that um, all intelligence agencies know these things are routinely listened to. They collect so the collection, they re- but release, release. That is was a it. whole different thing. Exactly. That was that, a huge that, inflection that, point. Yeah, 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 the collection yeah. is sort of that is just. Um, you know, so they crossed every, a line, a there. big line, and that, and and as it's been presented to me, that was, that was just kind of a a a small game changer in saying, wait a second, we have some basic, you know, great power rules of the road how we deal with intelligence. Everybody collects everything. Everybody tries to prevent it. We all do that, but here you're sort of using that. As you know, a a an offensive, uh, an, an active measure. Yeah, an active measure, it. and that's yeah. why the next crossing of the line was the WikiLeaks dump. Because when the when it was reported in June of 2016 that the Russians had hacked the uh, DNC, you know, I and a lot of others pointed out that well, you know, the Chinese had yeah. hacked the McCain and the Obama campaigns in 2008. It was intelligence collection. It was espionage. They didn't do anything publicly with the information, but, you know, weaponizing it, using it for political effect, that was a clear line that had been crossed. Exactly. That, that, that when when it was like, okay, that's sort of un, unnerving, but it's intelligent. They want to know, they want to understand right. our election. They're reading the campaign policy papers. They're trying to learn about these candidates, should they become president. That They were not trying to interfere in the democratic process. Right, right, right. <clears throat> so, all right, let, 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 let's shift gears to this, to this, about A, about podcast to podcast, but also this Rashida Tlaib thing. So what was it? This is about a month ago, right? More about three or less. weeks ago, maybe. Okay, ago. Something, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So, it, she she makes this comment. At least my take on it. It was sort of like a, a, a sort of an eye popping way to put it. Yeah. But to me, seemed well, very uncontroversial in its substance, and yet it was picked up by the right wing media well, and let, suddenly me, became this whole the, thing. Let me tell, yeah, let me tell yeah. the story because so, it evolved. So because it, it is interesting how it all happened um, and our reaction when it first happened, which was not the same as everyone else's. So uh, you, we had been trying to get Rashida Tlaib for a while. We were interested in interviewing. Um, and know, this is a freshman member freshman of Congress, member of Congress from, from Michigan. Palestinian American yeah. from Detroit. Um, and part of this new class of sort of firebrand uh, Democrats, um, AOC, uh, uh, you know, being the most famous of them, who we had interviewed a few weeks before that. Um, and, um, you know, we we wanted to talk to her uh, primarily, really, about um, her views on, on Trump, on the Russian investigation and impeachment, because I think she, she filed she the had- first— 
she had she had dropped the resolution for to begin an impeachment and inquiry. Then, right, and right. as a lot of people remember, yeah. uh, I guess the day she was sworn in, before she was sworn in, she said, she said yeah, let's, let's imp- impeach the motherfucker. Right, right, right. So right, right. Uh, we thought that would be, uh, she'd make a good interview on Skullduggery. It's Skull always fun playing that clip yeah. for your <laughs> broadcast audience. Right. Right. So, yeah. so I would say at least two-thirds of the interview uh, was about Trump and impeachment and the Russia investigation. Um, but she's also controversial um, because of some of her views on the Israeli-Palestinian question, and primarily the fact that she is a supporter of the so-called one-state solution, um, which is to say that there would be one state between the the, uh, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, which would uh, which uh, Jews are very much against because then they would be outnumbered and that would be the end of the Jewish state. So, um, you know, we prepared a few questions about that. And the first question I asked was about the one state solution. And that is when uh, she sort of paused and then she started talking about, you know, we just, she said, celebrated. Then she caught herself and said, you know, kind of recognized uh, the uh, kind of Holocaust uh, anniversary. anniversary. Um, And when I think about the Holocaust, uh, I get this um, calming, this calming feeling come, comes over me. And then she went on to explain that, um, which was a kind of a weird, tangled um, a- explanation, which is that basically um, she feels good that because uh, of the, through the suffering and injustices of her own people, the Palestinians, um, that helped create a safe haven for Jews who were persecuted uh, in the Holocaust. And it was just a kind of a strange uh, you know, kind of juxtaposition of the sufferings of these two two people, mm-hmm. and kind of ahistorical in some important ways. I then started to ask another question. She started to get a little emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she started to almost um, well up, mm-hmm. um, which we didn't fully sort of understand when it was happening. Meanwhile, the press secretary stands up and says, this interview is over, kind of waves her hands oh, really? like okay. that. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this is all happening in real time. So I, I said, well, wait a second, we have a few more questions. Right. And then we continued to ask questions about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And then at the end of it... So her press person been, tried to, like, stop the she interview. She tried to right stop the interview. Right, right, right. Yeah. It had been a very, you know, when we first got there, it was all very friendly and right. jolly and right. chit-chat before... At the end of the interview, she just stands up and and kind of just bolts uh, and, you know, barely says goodbye, clearly was upset. Um, we didn't fully understand why. I still don't really understand whether she realized that she sort of stepped into it with those comments or uh, or she got emotional because of her emotional, own, right, right about, because you know yeah. her, we, she was yeah, talking she's about from her, mother her, and her grandmother lives on the west bank think, you know it's you know, it's um, funny because on 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 your a historical point i have a bit of a different take because i think that the it was quickly there was a gloss that was quickly applied to it, which people said, well, she was saying, you know, Palestinians said, hey, you know, come on in. We want to help you because you had this Holocaust thing. But that's that's not what she said at all. She she uh, what she said and just and I've 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 listened to it and 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 read the you know, read the text a number of times was that, as you said, that her national community, her people uh, suffered uh, this great injustice, but through that injustice, through that suffering, 
this this also very good thing happened, creating th- that a refuge was created, a, a a door was opened for people who were who had just uh, experienced genocide. If she had genocide. explained it like that, yeah. I'm, well, there may still have been an issue because still, people right. took it out of But it wasn't; it was a little more reductionist than that in my yeah. reading of it, and when I listened to it at the time. The way, so the way she, so she, so she formulated it, and I don't have the words here in front of me, but that somehow the Palestinians should get credit for having, you know, provided a, a, a safe haven for Jews, when in fact, you know, the historical record is obviously right. the Palestinians were very much dead set against uh, any kind of and, safe haven right. for Jews. Understandably, right? in Jerusalem. You know, was meeting Hitler, with Hitler, right, and right, right, you know, right, so it, the, the history is more complicated right, th- right, than right. that. But let me tell you a little bit about the backstory, which we haven't talked about, how I think uh, this kind of uh, fire was set off, because um, I think it is revealing about the kind of media environment today. Um, first of all, when we walked out of the interview, the first thing we do is like, did we make news? Right. Um, and I think our reaction was, I think we we knew that those comments were weird and kind of tangled. But we did not think they were newsworthy. We didn't think we, they were particularly shows newsworthy. What we know. <laughs> yeah. You know, so uh, we didn't. And, but but as you say, it seems like her press person immediately yes, realized. Yes. Right, that ought to, should yeah. have tipped us off. But look, but, but look, what made it news was you know the. It, Oppo researchers for the Republican Party are listening to the podcast because we didn't play up those remarks at all. We did right. write a story about I... our comments about impeachment, but we did not write those. So somebody actually listened to the episode. Well, they did eventually, but here's how I think it happened. No, and no, this no is it was, was the calming feeling. That was what Liz Cheney jumped on. I, I get a I calming was, feeling was about Klein the Washington I think, well, here's what I think happened. Okay. Uh, when actually on the train on the way back, we were talking to our PR people and, and talking about, well, what, how do we, you know, did we make news? What do we want to, what do we want to put out there? And I talked about some of the things she said on impeachment. I can't even remember exactly what it was. But, uh, but then I said, um, look, I think maybe we ought to uh, clip that section on, on the questions about Israel and Palestine. Don't put it on YouTube? Give it to the Israeli press. Uh, <laughs> did we do that? And we did that. No, because oh. I, we did that. No, no, no. The I truth to comes people. out. This oh. is what happened. This is. Ah. I'm pretty sure this is what happened. No, but the okay. original the, story was in the Washington Examiner. Yeah, it and the Daily. The, well, that you, was the original. This is US this is what I'm media. getting at. Okay. Is that there the, is the relationship? Between, so the Israeli the the Israeli press they picked this up. They picked up specifically. Did they write about it? Yes. Before the Examiner. Before the. I, you know, I haven't I checked. I believe what happened is the Israeli press picked it up. Uh, and that's how it got on the radar screen of the right-wing press oh, in this my. country. And then the Daily Examiner and the, I think maybe the Daily Caller did it as well. In, in any I'm event, pretty sure that uh, the Examiner piece was uh, the first I, I think so. And right. I, think well, what I, I just meant it vis-a-vis so the Caller. Yeah. For the U.S. press, that yeah, was well, the first we'll, piece. But look, these, the, look the, the, the conservatives have targeted horror and AOC and, so, right. and, and uh, the, the other one. Um, Ilhan uh, Omar. Il, Ilman, Ilan Omar. Ilan Omar. You know, and they want to make the anti-Semitic argument. And, They've and been so, making that so for real, some time. So anything she says, they're going to that's really the point to me. I, right. and I think there's a broader political point that clearly for her, for Ilhan Omar, and I was publicly very critical of a number of Ilhan Omar's remarks. I think those are in a different category. I don't think that means she's an anti-Semite, but I thought the there were things she said that it's she, all about the Benjamins. Should, is kind of a crude way to it's, make it's, the comp- it's a very unfortunate a yeah. way to put it, given all the history. In this case, the but you have a broader reality where anything 
either of those two women say is, you know, they talk in, judi- you know, judicial talk, you know, strict, you know, strict scrutiny. You know, it is right. It, what can what possibly can you find it? And in that in the case in the case of uh, Rashida Tlaib, it was a kind of a weird comment. It kind of it was sort of, you know, that's that's a the, the, kind of the words or whatever. But. I don't think there was any animus in those remarks. I think a lot of the history is uh, valid. And I would say this is a rather empathetic and unifying way in our present politics to look at a very bloody and conflict-ridden past. I think that's exactly what she was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think she's look. She's not dumb. She's paid. She paid attention to what what happened uh, to Elon Omar, and I actually think she was trying, yeah. awkwardly, but yep. trying to reach out. But what happened, of course, is that after the Examiner did the story, Liz Cheney picked it up. Uh, it was that Sunday right. evening, I think, um, and uh, the tweet from Liz Cheney was. She just quoted, the Holocaust gives me a a calming feeling, and I think she referred to it as vile anti-Semitism. Right. And, then, and it and took then off Trump from there. And then Trump tweets the next, the next morning. And I will say, though, the Examiner headline was that, too. Right. The Examiner headline was, uh, you know, to the effect, I mean, it was basically calming feeling, Holocaust. Right. So, right. It, you right. know, it started. Right. So there are these media, she didn't have to media do much with political it. ecosystems on the right and the left in, in our uh, c- culture today, um, and these things become very self-contained, um, and they, they there's not a lot of room for nuance. Yeah, <laughs> sadly. I mean, I mean yeah, I, I guess you know, I, 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 I think many of us feel as a Jew. I think you guys are both Jewish. Not that it, not that it matters. Not that there's anything wrong <laughs> with that. Um, Proudly, yeah, but it, uh, it cuts very deep to see anti-Semitism, which is a real and growing issue, used as a political cudgel, um, especially in cases where um, a little awkwardly phrased, maybe fine. But I just don't think that was, well, I just I, don't it, think I that think was an example. A, a really important point. It's kind of the crying wolf point, which is that um, if it's politicized in this way, if, if every comment is taken out of context, then and, and we continue to be as polarized as we are, then when when we see examples of genuine anti-Semitism, it's going to be harder for the public to uh, di- uh, dis- distinguish between what's real and, and what isn't, um, and that's that's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I. I... I think there's a lot of problems with it, even in addition to that. But yeah. that's a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. um, but I but I uh, take I take your point. What are you guys trying to do with with your podcast? Everybody's doing podcasts. We're doing a podcast. What are you guys trying to do? And I assume it's kind of feeling your way yeah. towards what the model is. What I, tell, think tell I, us I about don't know that, that I, um, I made this connection um, when we started, but in retrospect. Um, I think uh, it was inspired a little bit by you, 
because okay. I I noticed how your obsessive coverage of the U.S. attorney scandal okay. back during the Bush years yeah. uh, created an audience all of its own, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. you covered every beat of that, yeah. uh, and um, and everybody interested in the subject then saw you as a place to go to. And I think you know we kind of thought, or I kind of thought, obsessive coverage of the Trump Russia story uh, would have an audience. Uh, in and of itself as and, well. Yeah. And, and um, I think beyond that- But the problem is everybody is doing, is doing right. saturation well, right. coverage right, right, of the right, right, uh, Trump right. Russia story. So I don't know that we've uh, uh, you know, distinguished ourselves. Oh, I do think we do have um, some pretty interesting guests and we uh, explore it in more depth and with more nuance than um, certainly and, what yeah. you hear on cable and, TV. And, right, and right, beyond right. that, I think what, what we've tried to do is what we've always tried to do, which is- uh, sort of be less pundits and and continue to be reporters. And so we try to we we you know really try to break news uh, on on the podcast. And um, I know this is uh, won't make me popular out there, um, but we do try to also um, stay f- fairly balanced in the sense that um, you know if there is a take the Mueller investigation, if there is a strand of that investigation, or I should say not necessarily investigation, but what people think should be investigated, right. that doesn't really hold up. You know, we wanted we wanted to bunk. Uh, look, that. I mean, in in our podcast we have today out today we interviewed. Uh, it's a good it's a good show I think, but we. One of the people we interviewed is David Enrich, who's the finance editor of the New York Times, who is writing a book about Trump and Deutsche Bank and probably knows as much about the subject as anybody. He's delved into it. Um, uh, he's interviewed multiple people at um, uh, Deutsche Bank. And, you know, th- there's clearly a lot of shady dealings there. And the whole question of how Trump continued to get loans uh, is, a, uh, is an entirely legitimate one. But he says he has found nobody and no real evidence that uh, Russian money laundering through Deutsche Bank is a part of the story. He said everybody he's interviewed there, nobody takes that seriously. He's found nobody who sees the connection between the very real laundering that Deutsche Bank in Moscow was doing for Russian oligarchs and the private banking division here in New York that was lending to Trump. Yet, that is, you know, sort of central to what the House Democrats are trying to discover, right? I mean, Adam Schiff, he's subpoenaed Deutsche Bank, financial uh, Maxine Waters. They all think if they could just get the Deutsche Bank records, right. it's going to unlock the riddle of the Trump-Russia relationship. It may unlock and, a lot of other riddles. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I, mean, they have, I think they have a range of ideas. They, I, they I think, do, but I think we're talking yeah. about Schiff's that one perspective, yeah. it's about It's about Russia. That's his grounds for doing so. And at least according to the guy who's reported on this more rigorously than anybody else, you know, he hasn't seen it. Now, maybe it's there. Maybe there's some hidden document. But we don't really have any hard evidence that this sort of, you know, dream scenario of the Democrats is going to come to fruition. Yeah. I mean, I would say I think that I think that my sense is a lot of them know. It's not a good story. 
and they don't know exactly what the story well, is. Trump dose is not a good story, well, well, which is why yeah, it's yeah, yeah. 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 assets, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. They, exactly. Fraud. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's not that's not nothing. that's not nothing. Right. That's not nothing. Right. Yes, I agree. Right. And I assume everybody can find it on iTunes and all the all the places you find Skullduggery. Skullduggery. Thank you. And and obviously <laughs> published by Yahoo News. Yes, that's right. Since that's yeah. the guy paying the 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 guy. The corporate entity paying your paying your salaries. Uh, let me remind everybody: the way we pay for everything TPM does is through memberships. Becoming a member means you get extra stories we write, you get fewer ads, you get a post on our special member forum, you get a bunch of other good stuff. But it also means you support our journalism, you support this podcast. We have a special offer for podcast listeners: twenty percent off a TPM Prime membership. To get that offer, go to talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. That's talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. Of course, also remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Go to gradyscoldbrew.com and use promo code TPM. Thanks, guys. Great. Thanks for Sounds coming fun. on. Thank, Thank you. you. Check out the podcast. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement of the restrictions apply.